So I received an email from a listener. She said that she is embarrassed and she feels like a fraud because she's a licensed therapy she's a licensed therapist and she doesn't have a theory. She doesn't adhere to a theoretical orientation. She said she didn't really understand theory very well. She asked me not to provide her name on the podcast, so I won't do that. I'm guessing it's because she feels quite ashamed of this. That's what she indicated. And I just want to say from the onset that you should not be ashamed of that because I think that there are a lot of people that are in the same shoes as you are. She says, again, she feels like a fraud. She says, I haven't a clue about what theory I am best suited for. She says she doesn't know how to choose or commit to a theory. She doesn't know even if it's necessary. She wonders if, if it's common that uh, people feel this way. She, she says she finds herself wondering if it's her fault that she doesn't adhere to a theory or if it's a fault of her graduate program or of her supervisors or due to the work that she does. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about all of that. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed therapist and a professor. It's just me today. I'm not basing this on any notes. I'm just going to talk off the top of my head. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. So the first thing I'll say is that there's nothing to be ashamed of if you're a therapist and you don't have a theory that you're following. It's a concern that I would address, but I wouldn't blame yourself or have any shame because you're not alone. When I started out, and I would say a lot of therapists were similar to me, we're not instructed very well. We weren't supervised very well. The thing that, the thing that I see happening a lot is in training programs, there's so much to train therapists on that theory gets pushed to the side. Because when someone lacks a theory, it's not, it's not obvious that they have a loose grasp on theory. Whereas if they have loose ethics or they have loose listening skills, then it's pretty obvious that they need to address that. So, so there's that. And I think because of that reason, a lot of instructors, a lot of training programs really drop the ball when it comes to preparing their students regarding theory. The other factor is that there are a lot of theories to instruct about. And unless the training program focuses on one or two theories, which some training programs do, then you end up teaching all of your students about all the theories in a very shallow manner, in a way that doesn't stick with the students very well. And, and those other programs that actually focus on one theory or another the, the students actually graduate with a pretty good beginning grasp of that theory. But that is, of course, at the expense of learning all the other theories, which there are many. The program that I teach in, incidentally, we're the sort of program where we teach all the theories. And so I have taken it upon myself as an instructor to try to graduate students that actually have some confidence in theory. And then I try to supervise postgrads on theory as well. So why is it so hard for therapists to decide on a theory and to know theory? Well, to get into some of the numbers, there are, I've heard, 400 plus different theories that are out there. 400 plus. 
So psychoanalysis is one of those. Cognitive therapy is one of those. And if you add up the list, you have you have 400 of these theories and more keep getting added to the pile because more authors, more researchers keep adding. So you can understand that it would be difficult to understand theory very well when you have that many. Plus, each one of those theories can be quite complex. Cognitive therapy is pretty easy, but something like psychoanalysis, I've been studying psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory for my entire career of almost 20 years now, and I feel like I'm scraping, just barely scraping the surface. And so there are some theories that you could spend your entire life trying to understand and you still will barely get it. And other theories are just really difficult to grasp because of the ways that humans or Americans tend to think, like systems theory is actually really counter to the way that people normally think. And therefore, it's not only hard to grasp at first, but it's hard to hold on to. As a systemic thinker myself, our program is a family therapy program. And so we teach systems theory. And I continually have to remind myself what systems theory is because I lose it every now and then. And over the past 20 years, I've become more accustomed to remind, I, you know, I, it doesn't take me as long to remind myself what the theory entails and how to embody that. But, but in the beginning, it was hard. And in the beginning, I was, in, I was an instructor. I, I, I've been teaching for 15, 16, 17 years now. And when I, for the first, I don't know, 10 years of, of being an, an instructor, I, I would sometimes lose the ability to comprehend systems thinking. <laughs> and, and so to, to expect a, a student to understand it after taking systems, a systems theory class just for one quarter is really a, a tall uh, request. It's really uh, unreasonable. The thing that I tell my postgrad people is that if you want to be confident in theory and if you want to be the best therapist that, that you can be, you really have to become proficient in theory, not only in understanding it, but in being able to apply it. And in order to do that, you really have to take it upon yourself to learn it. 99.9%, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, 99.9% of what I know about theory, I taught myself. I've certainly taken a lot of courses on theory, but those courses just give you a, a general idea of what the theory is. And depending on how good the, the instructor is, you could learn next to nothing because they're terrible at instructing it. A good instructor will give you a very brief summary of what the theory is. It's up to you to read, to think, to apply, to see the results with the clients, to talk with other clinicians, to read the research. It's up to you to do all that. You, you can't expect someone to download a theory into your brain like in the matrix or something. And that's the attitude I seem to get from a lot of students and a lot of therapists. They, they expect theory to happen to them and that is just not my experience. You have to take an active role in acquiring that knowledge. Now, what I'll, what I'll say is once you become somewhat proficient at, at absorbing this knowledge, it can actually feel quite gratifying. I think when I was in my early career, it was hard for me to learn theory because I was a bit resistant to it because I was not very good at it. And I felt very confused and I felt very stupid as I read a lot of the material. But as I progressed through my career and became more confident, I started to absorb it better. And now I actually like reading about theory. It actually is pleasurable to me. 
it somehow it it feels uh, I don't know it feels good to uh, you know acquire knowledge, but it also feels good to see confirmation uh, among other writers about what I am doing as a therapist. You know, I'll, I'll have a, a a notion in my mind that something is good for clients. And then when I read about it, I say, oh, yeah, that this person is articulating well and citing research that supports what I am doing. Okay, now I feel better about myself that, that I'm actually doing something that's supported and that is somewhat of a standard among some professionals. So I encourage you out there, if you don't have a very good grasp on theory to continue trying to acquire and 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 hopefully this podcast will will further that because I'll get into specific uh, theories in a second. So there have been studies looking at which theories the therapeutic community adheres to based on percentages. So they'll send out a survey and say, okay, of these theoretical orientations, which ones do you prefer? Which ones do you use? And they break it out by clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, social workers, and counselors. They don't have marriage and family therapists on here, which is um, a bit of a bothersome thing to me. But um, maybe they're lumping those in with social workers or counselors. I don't know. But anyway, so there's a number of studies that have looked at this, but here's just kind of an average. So that when we look at counselors, um, we see the most prevalent one at 29% saying that they adhere to cognitive therapy. And the next one at 23%, we, we see that they identify themselves as eclectic or integrative, which is interesting. It's hard to know what theories they are integrating, but they claim to be eclectic. So you have about a third saying cognitive and about a fourth saying they're eclectic. They're eclectic. The next is way down the list at 10% at Rogerian, which um, is always... Uh, uh, dear to my heart, which is nice, but only 10%. And then you have the next 8%, you have behavioral, and then you have a smattering of people uh, saying, you know, between like 1% and 7% of the following. Constructivist, humanistic, gestalt, interpersonal, multicultural, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, systems, and other. So when looking at this, this chart of counselors, you just see a huge, so you see a huge chunk of cognitive, and you see a you know a, a pretty big chunk of people saying they're integrated, and then you just see everyone else in these smaller categories, which is is really surprising to me, I I, I guess, but it's, it's interesting. So some might ask, well, why do you need a theory? Uh, you know, can't I just be a counselor and just go by the seat of my pants, and when something works, just keep doing that? And to some extent, I I would say yes, um, but. Um, another thing that I'd say to that is it's a bit arrogant to say that you are an expert on everything and that you know everything and that you couldn't benefit by learning from others that have researched and, and written uh, about the topic that you are practicing. Um, when I hear people say that, when I hear people say, you know, well, I've invented my own theory. I, I tend to think, okay, well, that's nice of you, and that's creative, and I, I appreciate that. But it's also, I think, a bit of a cop-out because it's easier to do that than to actually do the reading and to do the learning. But it's also, a, again, like I said, a bit arrogant, a bit narcissistic to, to think that you yourself have the answers to everything. 
The thing that I am made aware of when I read, particularly in the psychodynamic literature, is that so many brilliant, excellent people have come before me and have experienced the work that I am doing and have written about it and have a lot of wisdom and a lot of things to say that are useful to me that I can learn from. Now, does that mean that I'm just going to use whatever people say and I'm just going to follow them and I'm not going to incorporate my own wisdom? Absolutely not. I, I absolutely do depend on my own wisdom and, and, and think that all therapists should. But I, I definitely know that I am one among many and I stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say, regarding past therapists that have, that have written about what we do. And um, we can definitely benefit from them. So, so there's a lot of value to having a theoretical orientation. The other thing is, is that when you have a theory you have a direction. You're not aimless. If you don't have a theory, then you, by definition, have no basis for what you're doing. You're, you're just making it up as you go, which, again, is, can't, can't, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but could be a bad thing. Um, and it's not as if if you have a theoretical orientation, that automatically means that you're a golden therapist, uh, but it definitely helps, in my opinion. And I think research supports that. So, Having a theory gives you a direction. It gives you an idea of what you're going to ask about at the intake. It has an idea of how you're going to interpret behavior. It has an It gives you an idea of what sort of treatment you're going to provide. And, and it helps in other ways, too. Like if a client asks you, well, what are you doing? What's, you know, what's the point of, of you know, what you're doing right now? Well, if you have no theory to base it on, then you're just going to be staring back at them saying, um because I think it's good. And that's not a good enough answer. And it's unethical, frankly, to have such an answer. You really need to be able to justify why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, it, I, you know, to some extent, I, I don't like comparing our field to the medical field because it, it, it's quite different in my opinion. But to some extent, it is similar in terms of service delivery for particular diagnoses. But so, you know, imagine you go to a doctor and you have, you know, a bunch of symptoms, you know, like you have headaches and you're throwing up and you are really tired. And the doctor says, well, I'm going to now poke you in the arm with this stick for a while and make you look at this bush or something. I don't know, this off the top of my head. And, and you're thinking, hmm, this doesn't seem to be working very well. And you turn to the doctor and you say, why, why are you doing this? You know, what's, what's the purpose? And the doctor said, well, it just came to me and I thought it might work. Well, you'd get up and walk out of the office at that point, right? I mean, you, what you want your doctor to say is, well, based on the research, it, your symptoms fit this particular diagnosis and it's been found through trials and through clinical studies that poking you in the arm with a stick and making you stare at this bush will have a 35% you know, chance of reducing your symptoms or something. I mean, that's the sort of thing that therapists, maybe not with that precision, need to be able to say. And frankly, if you don't have a theory, then you don't even have a beginning point to be able to have that conversation with, with your clients. So... So you really need to have at least some grasp on theory in order to guide your treatment and to be able to communicate with your clients and other professionals. 
you know, if you're talking with another psychologist or another counselor or medical professional or psychiatrist or something, and you get into a, to a conversation about treatment planning and you have no theory, then again, you're going to be quite lost. And I've been lost. I'm, I can't lie to you. I can't say that I, I haven't been insecure about my own grasp on theory. You know, in the beginning of my career, I had a, had a, you know, hard time with it, you know, because it's a difficult thing to grasp. And that's the wonderful thing I think about our profession is that it's hard to master this profession. And you could be learning theory for the entire span of your 50 year career and still really only understand a, a portion of, of what there is to learn. And, and that's the way I feel it is for me. So another thing I want to talk about before I get into the specific theories is that theories overlap quite a bit. When you learn all the different theor theoretical orientations of, of psychotherapy, you quickly see that they have a lot of common features and they recommend a lot of common things. They might even use the same word for it, but sometimes they use different words for it. And that can be very confusing for people because whenever you read a theory and, and learn an, another theoretical orientation, it feels like you're learning from scratch. But if you start looking for commonalities of things that you already understand, then it makes it easier to learn. So just keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you ask someone what a particular theory is, particularly the more esoteric ones like psychodynamic theory, you are going to get a lot of different answers. And so that is an additional reason why it's hard to learn theories because for some theories, no one can agree on what exactly it is. So that's another thing to think about. So let's start with, with some easy ones first. So let's start with cognitive therapy. Now, a lot of times people talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is an integration of two different theories that are really quite different that for the most part fit well together. You know, people talk about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, it's, it's, I think much easier in terms of understanding not only the theories, but also understanding what you do if you break them up and to, to really understand that CBT is an integration like any other integration. You know, it'd be like if you did a, an integration of cognitive and humanistic. So you would say, I'm a cognitive humanistic therapist. Well, you need to understand cognitive therapy and you need to understand humanistic therapy to understand what that integration is because they're really quite different and cognitive behavioral is really quite different. So cognitive therapy is, and again, this is just my opinion and it's off the top of my head, so it might not be very articulate and some of you might disagree, but cognitive therapy is based on the idea that what you think has an effect on your feelings and your behavior and consequently what you would think uh, based on your interactions with the world. So let me say that again, and there are better ways to articulate this, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, another word for this is perspective. And pretty much all therapists in this way are cognitive. There, I, I can't think of any therapist that I've ever known that wouldn't address perspective when they see an issue of perspective in their clients. So say, for instance, you have a client. Let's see what sort of example comes out of my mouth right now. So let's say you, you, know, you have a client. So let's say you have a, um, a husband and he's saying that his wife never wants to spend time with him. And he's saying 
that he feels really neglected. And when he feels neglected, he ends up getting angry and he ends up uh, being in a bad mood around his wife. And, and he's telling the story to the therapist and the, and the therapist might, might say, huh, okay, well, tell me more about what's happening at home. Well, you know, we have three children and we have a, a young, a young baby, young infant. And my wife is, is spending all of her time with the baby and we're both working parents and it's the holidays and uh, the in-laws are coming in from out of town. So immediately as a therapist or a non-therapist, you might say to yourself, well, maybe you as the, maybe, maybe you client husband person, maybe your perspective is, is off here a little bit because you're looking at your wife and you're wanting her to spend more attention. You want her to pay more attention to you. But she's working full time. She commutes. She has three children. You both have three children. You have an infant. Perhaps your wife is, you know, responsible for a majority of the care for the infant. It's the holidays. The inf- you know, the in laws are coming in from out of town. She's not going to have a lot of time for you right now. It's understandable that you would feel hurt by that, but it's not necessarily helpful to take a perspective that your wife is neglecting you. A different perspective is that your wife is just really busy. And maybe your wife really wants to pay more attention to you because she would love to slow down and just have, you know, marital happiness. But she's just overloaded right now. And so when you change your perspective, husband, then that will lead to you feeling differently. You won't feel as hurt and therefore you won't get as angry and you won't be as angry toward your wife, and maybe your wife will be more likely to pay more attention to you. So there isn't a therapist around that wouldn't see that, and that's cognitive therapy right there. It's not very complicated. It's all based on perspective. Now, we can get more into the weeds in terms of the technical side of cognitive therapy in terms of cataloging your automatic thoughts and your core beliefs and all that kind of stuff, but really it just comes down to that. It just comes down to whether or not you as a therapist. So the question that you should ask yourself is, as a therapist is, do you talk about perspective with your clients? And do you talk about where there's the, where those perspectives come from? I mean, again, just going off this example, maybe this husband had parents that were working all the time and neglected him. And this built this core belief for him based on the past or schema, which is another therapy based on cognitive therapy. It's called schema therapy. So it developed a schema that you are unlovable and that people will always reject you. And unless you get angry, then no one will pay any attention to you. And so you, as, as a therapist, you might start to talk about how they developed that core belief and how that affects their perspective and their interpretations today. And as a cognitive therapist, you would, you might offer a different perspective or you might start going over different pieces of evidence. So, so what evidence do you have that your wife wants to neglect you? Well, she, you know, you can't really come up with anything, you know, is, is there evidence that she actually does care? Well, the other day she, you know, said she really wished she had more time for us. Okay. So there's some evidence that, that you actually have a wife that actually does want to spend more time with you, but again is overloaded on all these other obligations. So that's cognitive therapy, which is really quite different from behavioral therapy, which I will talk about next. Behavioral therapy is based on learning. It's based on reinforcement. 
it, it's based, I could go really into the weeds on this one. It's, it can become extremely technical because a lot of researchers will use behavioral therapy when they try to figure out why people and animals do the things that they do. And uh, so I won't go into all of it, but it can get quite technical. But basically, in a nutshell, and the way that it gets applied in therapy is, do you believe as a therapist that so so let me wrap up the cognitive side. So if you believe in perspective and you utilize that in your therapy, then you are in part at least a cognitive therapist. So going on to behavioral theory. So if you believe that people are trainable, that they through reinforcement will change the their behavior and maybe even their thoughts and feelings, then you are a behaviorist as well. And again, I can't think of anyone I know that doesn't believe, at least in part, in behavioral therapy, for instance. And again, there are so many different ways that behavioral uh, theory works its way into therapy in effective ways. But just some examples off the top of my head. Parenting is one of the things that I talk with a lot of people about, talk with a lot of people about parenting. And you know, if, if you're a parent and you are dealing with a 13-year-old that is not doing chores and is being very impertinent and having a bad attitude, but you really want to teach your child that they can't get away with not doing their chores. They have to contribute their part, and you really want your kid to have a good work, work ethic, then you would engage in behavioral therapy potentially to change this child's behavior. So you would talk about rewards. You would talk about how to... Uh, create positive messages toward that child when they do things that you want them to do. And there are thousands and thousands of studies on rats and on other animals and humans that show that when you do a particular set of things, you tend to see behavior change. And one of the things that is proven time and time again is that when you give positive messages and when you reward people for behavior that you want them to do, then they tend to do that behavior. So whereas if you punish people, that that tends to stop that behavior, but it doesn't tend to create new behavior. So pats on the back, you know, smiling at them, saying good job or saying, I really like it when you do that. Uh, here's five bucks for what you did, or now that you've done your chores, you can have more screen time or, you know, those kinds of rewards. So that's behavioral therapy. That's just one example. Another one that I often will use is in couples therapy. So if, if I'm talking to a couple, say I'm talking to a gay female uh, couple and uh, one woman is, is saying to her partner, to her wife that, Let's say that she wants her wife to talk more. So she, 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 she's looking at her wife and she's saying, my wife never talks to me. She's very quiet and I ask her how her day is going and she just grunts at me and says, you know, things are fine. And I really wish that she would communicate more because I, I feel really distant from my wife. Okay, so I might turn to wife number two and say, you know, what's, what's going on there is, you know, let's explore that. Do, do, you know, do you not want to do that? Um, you know, what is it about the questions? Maybe you don't like the questions. So we would get into behaviors. Okay. We'd get into 
Well, so maybe with wife number two, she says, well, when she asks me, it feels like she's interrogating me. Okay, so, so how does she ask you? Well, she asks me like, well, what did you do today? And so there's a tone to her voice. Okay, so go back to wife number one. Wife number one, what can't, you know, can you change your tone a little bit? Or, or going back to wife number two, she might say, well, I, I also don't like it that she just interrogates me right when I walk in the door. When, right when I walk in the door, I want to take like a half an hour or an hour to just you know, decompress. And, and then after I unwind, then she can ask me questions and, and I'll probably be in a better mood to, to talk. Okay, wife number one, can you do that? Yes. Okay. So that's a behavioral intervention. It sounds rather simple, but when you look at the underlying ideas, it's, it's behavior, it's behaviorism at work. You're trying to reduce the behavioral sequences that lead to results that you don't want. And you're trying to increase, you're trying to change behavioral sequences that lead to results that you do want that actually reward each other. So for instance, if the wife number one waits an hour to say something to wife number two, so wife number one waits and waits and you know, shows restraint, comes to wife number two, says, okay, I uh, just wanted to check in. How was your day today? I'm just interested. So again, nice, you know, nice tone. And wife number two says, oh, well, I don't know. My, my day was kind of normal, but uh, this interesting thing happened with so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. So they're both rewarding each other. Wife number one is rewarding wife number two for communicating her needs that she needs some some decompression time. Wife number two is rewarding that by communicating a little bit more, which reinforces that behavior and makes it more likely to happen in the future. And what they both get in the end is closeness, which is not necessarily a behaviorism concern, but it is something that is a concern to the couple. So again, I, I could go on and on about behaviorism, but if you believe in the, the, just the two examples that I used, which I can't imagine you couldn't believe in the power of behaviorism, then you are in part a behavioral therapist. Okay, so let's move on. So the next broad area of therapy I want to talk about is what I might call, and other authors call, experiential humanistic psychotherapy. So there are only about six or seven, in, in my opinion, broad umbrellas under which all 400 plus of the theories could be categorized within. And the first one is cognitive, the second one is behavioral, and the third one I want to talk about, the third major umbrella under which many therapies can fall underneath is experiential humanistic therapy. Under this umbrella, you might place gestalt, regerian, client-centered therapy, you might place existential psychotherapy underneath this umbrella, although some might disagree with that. So, so let me just go over some of the major tenets of this and, and ask you as a listener if, if you adhere to these, and if so, then you're in part an experiential humanistic psychotherapist according to my constructed definition. So do you believe in trying to help people live in the here and now? Do you, do you think that people worry too much about the past and worry too much about the future? You know, don't spend enough time in the here and now. Think about Yoda talking to Luke Skywalker, always thinking about his friends, always never where he is right now, poking him with his stick on Dagobah, if you're a Star Wars fan. Um, do you believe in, in trying to identify feelings? Do you believe in trying to help people come together? Do you believe in, in relationships between people as, as being a fertile ground upon which people grow? 
do you believe that when people can identify and express their feelings well, that pathology tends to go away? Do you believe that it's important for people to be authentic and to know who they are and to move toward a self that they believe is congruent with who they see they themselves as? Then if you believe in those things, then you are in part an experiential humanistic therapist. Do you believe that people are good? Do you believe that people can grow? Do you believe that when you move aside barriers to human growth, that people grow and that people have a natural energy toward uh, growing and towards health? This is a very humanistic psychology notion. So in therapy, if you've ever tried to help someone understand their emotions, you know, someone comes in and, and says, I recently got a, you know, got a divorce and I, I, I'm just really confused about what's going on. And so you might say, well, how do you feel? And the person says, well, I don't know how I feel. I, I just feel upset. Okay, upset. Well, tell me more. Well, I, I feel that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm confused. Oh, okay, so you feel confused. And so you're reflecting back to the client with positive regards, saying, without judgment, you know, you're saying, wow, you feel confused. That, that makes sense. That's normal that you would feel confused after a divorce. Most people feel that way. So not only are you helping them identify feelings, but you're also clarifying the feelings. You're, you're helping them to express their feelings. You're not judging them. You're having positive regard. But you're also kind of intimating, if not just blatantly telling them, that they should feel their emotions, that they should allow themselves to feel their emotions fully, that they should be authentic to who they are, who, who, you know, to who they are and what they're going through at the time, to be in the here and now. Right now, you are confused. And also to strip away the barriers of self-judgment that our society internalizes in all of us, that we shouldn't be confused, that we shouldn't be upset, that we should never be hurt, that we should always be, you know, happy and confident and know what we're doing. And the, uh, you know, and then when we have confusion and hurt and pain and uncertainty, then we don't know what to do with those feelings. And so therapists can help with those feelings. And that's a very humanistic notion, a very humanistic idea is, is the idea that when, when people are allowed to be authentic, when they allow themselves to be authentic, and sometimes therapists can help with that, when people allow themselves to be authentic, then things tend to go better that you don't necessarily have to help someone with their thoughts or help someone with their behavior. You just have to help with their feelings. You have to help them to be more authentic and to pay attention to themselves. Um, another part of, of this area of gestalt, which is underneath this umbrella, in my opinion, is getting to know different parts of yourself. Okay, well, a part of yourself right now is really angry or ex-wife. Another part of yourself really wants to get back together with your ex-wife. Another part of you is just wants to forget about the whole thing. And so trying to identify those different parts and, and being authentic to those different parts when those parts emerge is another what I would consider to be a humanistic psychology notion. So again, if any of this is res resonating with you, 
then in my opinion, you are in part an experiential humanistic psychotherapist. You might, you know, narrow that down to gestalt or existential or person-centered, Rogerian, these kinds of things. But they're all in this in this general area. And most therapists adhere to these notions. And so most therapists, in, in my opinion, at least in part, are humanistic. But not very many people, according to the research, identify themselves as such. So the, the next major area, major umbrella I want to talk about when it comes to psychotherapeutic categories is psychodynamic therapy. And as I've talked about before, psychodynamic theory is so broad and has been written about by so many brilliant people that sometimes argue with each other for so many years that it's impossible for me to summarize it. And many people might disagree with my summarization of it because, again, there's just so much that's written about it. But, but and again, just the broad strokes on psychodynamic theory and, and how it plays out in therapy. Let me ask you some questions here, if you're a therapist, uh, to see whether or not you are at least in part a psychodynamic therapist. Do you believe that people's histories, their childhoods in particular, has an effect on who they are today? If you believe that, then you're in part, in my opinion, a psychodynamic therapist. And in other areas that, other theories that might, that I consider to be related to this is attachment theory. Some people consider it to be quite separate from psychodynamic theory, but in my opinion, it's really, it's, they're, they're really close cousins to each other. And so do you believe in attachment? Early attachments affect attachment style later on in life. Do you believe that people's personalities, well, even just the notion of personality. So with, with cognitive therapy, with behavioral therapy, with humanistic psychology, none of these therapies are concerned with personality. They're all concerned with the here and now. They're concerned with what you're doing with yourself right now, with the choices you're making right now, for the most part. And whereas psychodynamic therapy is very much concerned with how your personality has developed particularly in your early life, in your family life. And so if you believe that one's early childhood affects their personality, or even if you believe in the notion of a personality in and of itself, then you are in part, in my opinion, a psychodynamic therapist. So getting more specific, do you believe that exploring childhood experiences or exploring past experiences is an important action in therapy? And this you'll find that people will disagree on. Some people are adamant about exploring childhood experiences at the direction of the client. And some people think it's completely worthless. And this is really a differentiating factor in what kind of therapist you are. And I'll get into more of that later. But, but if you believe in exploring the past is helpful, then you are in part a psychodynamic therapist. Do you believe in utilizing the relationship that you have with the client as a therapist? Do you believe that your relationship with your client has something to do with the therapeutic power of therapy? Then, in my opinion, you're somewhat of a psychodynamic therapist because psychodynamic therapists were really the first and the most adamant uh, therapists to promote this idea that the relationship between client and therapist is a excellent place to 
try out certain things and to, to utilize for interpretation. For instance, you know, a client comes in and says, you really hurt my feelings last week when you said X, Y, and Z. And the therapist says, okay, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that gives us a chance to talk about it. You know, let's, let's, what happened? You know, what did I say? And how did you react? And, and well, here's what was going on for me. And, and you know what, as your therapist, sometimes I, I get in a bad mood and, and maybe I was picking up on something and yeah, I said something that I, I shouldn't have said. And, and you're right. Um, I, I was wrong and thank you for that. So that all of that therapeutic relational work is not only just in my opinion, curative for the client's issues, relational issues sometimes, but it also will generalize to the relationships outside of the therapeutic relationship in that the client will feel more able to assert themselves, more able to trust other people and more able to have the kind of relational life that they want to have. So that's another very psychodynamic, uh, element. Now, some people will say, well, I'm an existential therapist, and I also believe in that. And I was told that existential therapists are very much interested in the relationship. And and that's very much true. So again, as I was saying earlier, it's all a matter of how you define this sort of thing. And, and there's a lot of overlap between the different theories. So you can't really say that psychodynamic therapists are the only ones that concern themselves with the therapeutic relationship because it's just really not true. But in terms of what's often written about as central to the different schools, this is one of those things that's central that isn't necessarily central to existential therapy, for instance. So again, are you interested in attachment styles? Are you interested in working through past conflicts? Are you interested in counter-transference? Are you interested in the way that you feel when you're with the client? Are you interested in the subtle ways that things get communicated between people and the ways that different defense mechanisms work, work themselves out? If you believe in, in the defense mechanism of denial or projection or displacement, you are in part a psychodynamic therapist. I could go on and on about defense mechanisms and on and on about internalization and childhood and, and counter-transference and transference and all this stuff, but it's, that's for another podcast. But just know that, again, if you're interested in the past, if you're interested in relationship themes, if you're interested in attachment and the therapeutic relationship, and you're, if you're interested in working through different uh, core feelings that are associated with things that happened in the past and that, uh, you know, through expressing those core feelings to the therapist in therapy can be curative for people, then you're to some extent a psychodynamic therapist. Okay, so let's go on to our, our next major umbrella. The next major umbrella I, I want to talk about is, is systemic therapy. And this is often associated with family therapists, but not always. And it's something that we teach in the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. And that's, you know, where I'm a professor. And we, uh, we t- touch upon all theories, but we specifically make sure that our students understand systems theory. And this is one of the more obscure theories that a lot of people either have never heard of or have a very uh, loose grasp upon. So uh, let me just sort of, again, provide a very brief overview. And again, it's impossible for me to, to teach you the whole thing and to really 
in, you know, inject it into your brain because it took me years to really get it myself. But anyway, the, the, the broad strokes are, um, do you believe that the system within which one exists affects their personality, their behavior, their feelings, their pathology? If you believe that the, the family that someone exists in or the relationships or the workplace or the community affects this person, and do you believe that the person, your client, affects these communities and these families, then to some extent you're a systemic thinker. Back, way back in the day, the, these kinds of thoughts just weren't considered by most people. They didn't think about this. They, they mainly focused on individuals. But as the 20th century progressed, a lot of thinkers started saying, wait a second, you, you have to think about the context within which these people exist because you know if someone's depressed and you just work on their cognitions and their thoughts regarding their depression and then they go home and their family treats them poorly and they feel really bad about themselves and then they come back into therapy and you just continue to work on their on their thought processes then you're not really addressing the problem what you have to do is address the system you have to bring the whole system in and say why is everyone berating this individual what's what purpose does that provide the system so that's another major tenet of systems thinking is that systems have different needs that lead to systemic behavior among all the individuals within the system. So I plan on going into more of this in another episode in which I want to talk, or a series of episodes in which I talk about systems theory. And by the way, if you're listening out there and you enjoy these kinds of theory episodes, I encourage you to either donate or to sign up for the continuing education programs that I have available at psychologyinseattle.com. You know, the, the theory episodes require a lot more homework for me. And if you want me to provide more of that sort of heavy-duty theory stuff, uh, I really need the podcast to have some kind of, uh, you know, money coming into it because it, when I spend more time in the podcast, I have to cut back on my private practice and I need my private practice to pay my bills. And so... Um, you know, I'm also a professor too. That I can't cut back on. I always have to do that. That's that's my full time job. But my small private practice on the side, I, I have to reduce that for the podcast if the podcast is going to become bigger. And so, again, the only way I can really justify that to my account is if I am making some money. So, if you want me to have more episodes like this, then please go to the website and donate and or. Um, start taking the continuing education courses. And again, the continuing education courses are just listening to the podcast and then you take a little easy quiz at the end and you get your certificate saying that you completed a certain amount of hours of continuing ed, which if you're a licensed professional, you need. So it just seems like a win-win for everybody. So uh, just a little plug there. But but anyway, so uh, one of the main ideas of, of systems theory is that like is the idea that a system has has a need and that all the be all the all the members of that system will behave in a way to meet that need so if the system has a need to distract from the father's alcoholism for instance then the system will act in a way to distract themselves from the alcohol alcoholism in the father by doing a number of odd things 
one of the things that it might do is it might target another individual and berate them and, and make fun of them and judge them and make them feel bad about themselves. And this creates a scapegoat. It creates someone uh, that can be a lightning rod for the problems of the family as a way of distracting from what the family system believes to be a bigger, more difficult problem of the father's alcoholism. When the father first started developing alcoholism, the family tried to adjust. It tried to get the father to reduce his, his drinking. The father uh, responded in such a way that it, you know, that wasn't going to work. And so the system starts looking around for other ways of functioning uh, through this difficulty. And they might elect one person to become the scapegoat, and that person might start acting out. That person might start incurring a lot of judgment from other people, and this serves a function for this for the system to help it stay stable because systems like stability. And when you have a lack of a distraction, then the system and all the elements in it, the members in it, feel unstable, and so they start looking for uh, ways of, of finding stability. Now, the family doesn't get together and say, let's elect a scapegoat. It's all unconscious. It all happens unconsciously. But it, it's something that I very much see in the families that I treat. It's very interesting to to treat whole families because you see these dynamics playing out and you see the different roles that different members will take and you'll see how the whole thing fits together. You'll hear family therapists talking about how the family dances together, how they move together. They'll talk about homeostasis, which is the state of equilibrium where everything is in a state of stability. And systems like to, quote unquote, like to be stable. So, so this is a systems idea. So if you believe in this, which not that many people do, then in part you're a systems therapist. Do you believe in asking clients about how their family operates? Do you believe that it's helpful to find out the different rules and the structure of a family? Do you believe that it's important to address the entire family or address the, the larger system within which the client operates? Well, if you do, then you're in part a systems therapist. Okay, going on to another major umbrella of the bio, biology umbrella, I might call it. So do you believe that biology has or physiology has something to do with people's psychology again most therapists do and so most therapists in my opinion in this way are a biological or a biopsychological therapist so do you believe in addressing someone's health do you believe that it's important for clients to diet well to have a good diet and to exercise do you believe that sleep affects people's depression levels their adhd symptoms do you believe that people need to have a good relaxation practice do you believe that their brain's health is a part of of the complaints that they bring in to therapy if, if you believe in this sort of thing, then to some extent you're a biological therapist or a biopsychological therapist. Now, most would say, well, this is obvious. I mean, this is just something that, of course, you would, you would talk about, but, but many therapists don't, you know, especially back in the day uh, when a lot of science wasn't available to people. They 
didn't focus on this very much at all. So, so in this way, you know, it's just something to, to think about. You know, do you believe in medication as a part of uh, an answer to some people's problems? Then, to some extent, you incorporate biology into your therapy. So again, we have cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, we have systems therapy, we have humanistic psychology, we have we have psychodynamic, and we have biology, and we also have let's see what's what's another uh, major umbrella. Well, another major umbrella is multiculturalism. So, so let me ask you this: Do you believe that the context? that someone lives in has an effect on who they are. So this is related to systems thinking, and sometimes uh, they, they get you know, lumped together, but, but I'll break it out uh, for, for the purpose of this podcast. You know, there, do you believe in feminism? Do you believe that our society and our culture can create issues for people? Uh, I have a supervisee who uses this as his primary theoretical orientation. He uses multiculturalism as his primary way of assessing people's issues and providing treatment. You know, uh, and this is an area that a lot of people ignore and a lot of people don't incorporate into their therapy, but it's, it's something that really needs to be incorporated, in my opinion, and, and in a lot of other people's opinions. So do you believe that you know, say for instance, you have an African American client and he has low self esteem and he is having a hard time finding a job and he is thinking about giving up. Well, if you don't consider the context of this man's life and you don't consider the history of race and ethnicity in America, then you would just proceed maybe with cognitive therapy or psychodynamic therapy or maybe look at his family. But you really need to at least assess how culture and how oppression and prejudice is affecting this man's life. And until you do that, you're really missing a major a major element. Now, are you going to be able to change society and, and end the prejudice for this person? No. But you, unless you validate someone's experience with prejudice, then you're going to be missing a major piece of the reason why they might be running into problems and, uh, the, and one of the reasons why their self-esteem isn't doing so well. You know, I talk with a lot of people that are people of color and I talk with a lot of women about these issues. For instance, I talk with a lot of couples about how Still today in 2015, it's 2015, wow. Um, Still today, we have men and women in marriages in which the wife does a majority of the housework and the child rearing, even though both people work full time. And this is a behavior and an attitude that is supported still today by our society and our culture. And it's unfair. And what it does is it creates resentment and suffering for both people, really, and needs to be changed. And so when I see couples, one of the things I might ask about is about this issue, about how they divvy up chores and child rearing. And I won't necessarily accept their first answer. You know, if I say, well, do you have a equal distribution of, of chores and and responsibilities in the house, they, they might both say, oh, yeah, sure, we, we, we both share equally. It's 50-50. 
And so if I wasn't a feminist, if I wasn't a multiculturalist, I would just take their word for it and say, well, okay, well, they both said it's equal, so that's great. But because I'm a feminist and I consider context, I know through experience and through research that even though they both think it's 50-50, it's actually more like 70-30. And because society tells women that they're supposed to take on more than the man, then they think they're doing 50-50, but they're actually doing 70. And a lot of women... Uh, if you try to get them to do 50, they feel like they're being a bad wife, they're being a bad mother. And so I might get more specific, like, well, who puts the child to bed and who feeds the child and who changes the child's diapers and who picks the child up from school and who does the chores around the house, who cooks and who goes to the grocery store. And so I might do a quick, you know, one or two minute assessment of that. And if at the end of that, it seems clear uh, that there's an injustice, then I might say, well, it, it looks to me like you, it, it feels like it's 50-50, but it, it feels a little unfair against one person. Um, and, and it's not like I, I'm on a personal mission to make everyone be fair to each other, but if I would only do that if I thought that it was pertinent to the issue. So say the couple comes in saying, that they feel distant from each other and that they're not communicating well. Well, an hypothesis, a strong hypothesis, is that one member is feeling overstressed and put upon and treated unfairly, and therefore that needs to be changed in order for both people to feel uh, free enough to be able to give love to the other person. And so that's why I would go down that road of inquiry with them. So, so those are just two very, you know, easy examples of incorporating multiculturalism and feminism in your therapy. But, you know, it really uh, goes, uh, there's, there's, there's really infinite other uh, possibilities. Another major thing to consider is your own power and privilege as a therapist. As a therapist, you are likely to be more educated than your clients. You're likely to make more money. Uh, not always, of course. You're likely to have the power of your profession behind you. And that in and of itself creates an innate power differential between you and your client. Your opinions are more powerful than your client's opinions. And if a client comes from a background and a context in which they are frequently put upon by people that are that have more power, then that might create a complication in your in your relationship. And you might have to address that. Many feminists like myself will actively try to demote the therapists uh, higher in the hierarchy. They might try to say things that indicate that the therapist doesn't always know what they're doing or, or that the therapist isn't the authority on all things and that the client definitely has power and, and definitely has privilege and definitely has the right to say what's on their mind and has the right to value their own thoughts. And so this, again, is taking context into consideration. So if you do that, which, again, many people don't, then you are in part a multicultural therapist. Okay, so we've talked about cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, multicultural therapy, psychodynamic therapy, humanistic therapy, and biological or 
biopsychological or neuropsychological or whatever label you want to put to it in terms of looking at the biology. So cognitive, we looked at behavioral, psychodynamic, humanistic, biology, multiculturalism, and systems thinking. And the final one that I want to introduce is what I would call brief therapy or solution-focused therapy. Some people call it postmodern therapies, strategic therapy, narrative therapy. They're often associated with family therapy, but not always. So I'll call it brief solution-focused therapy umbrella. And they, all the different forms of therapy underneath this umbrella have uh, the, what I think to be the common, these common elements. They, they believe that, that therapy is based on solution building rather than problem solving. So, you know, someone comes in with a problem and says, I'm depressed. Well, one way of characterizing therapy is from that point forward, you're focused on the depression. You're trying to get rid of the depression. Well, under the brief therapy model, you don't focus on the depression. You focus on what they want to get to. So you say, well, okay, so, so you're saying you're depressed. Well, what would you like instead? And the person would say, well, I'd, I'd like to not be depressed. And I'd say, well, how, how could we word that without using the word depression? They'd say, well, I guess I would like to be happy. I would like to be content. I would like to have energy. I would like to have motivation. I would like to get things done. I would like to have higher self-esteem. Oh, okay. So let's focus on that. Let's focus on how you can have higher self-esteem, how you can have more energy. And so it's focusing on building solutions toward that goal rather than what the brief therapist might call dwelling on the problem. And the way that brief therapists tend to talk about non-brief therapists is a little bit of a little bit of a straw man in that they will often characterize other therapists as being too focused on problems and stuck in problems and this sort of thing, which is not a fair representation, but but that's, you know, commonly the way it's it's discussed. And and so so these brief solution focused postmodern therapists will focus on how to get that person to those goals in a very quick manner. That's why it's you know called brief therapy. Instead of saying, okay, we've got to talk about this for 10, 20 sessions, they'll say, hey, let, let's, let's get this done in three sessions. And they'll focus very much on what things get them to the goal. So they might say something like, well, when was the last time you had high self-esteem? And the person would say, well, I don't know, a couple years ago when I was with my friends and we went fishing and I caught a fish and it felt really good. Oh, okay. So you're saying that when you went fishing with your friends, you caught a fish and you're hanging out with your friends and it felt good and you're out in the outdoors and you're doing something that you like to do. And in that moment, you got what you want, which is high self-esteem, and you felt motivation and energy and all those things. Okay, so how, how can you perpetuate that behavior to get that goal. Let's experiment here. Over the next week, might there be something you could do that would be along those lines? And the person would say, oh, well, I guess I could go fishing with my friends at the river or something. Maybe that'll help. Oh, okay, well, let's see if that helps. You know, it seemed to help in the past. So it, instead of saying, tell me about your depression, what gets you down? What are you sad about? Brief therapists tend not to focus on that. They, they will steer the conversation with the client towards discussions that 
are very pragmatic towards one's goals. And if you're not familiar with solution focused or narrative therapy or postmodern or collaborative therapies, then it might just sound like you're just giving advice or you're denying someone's problems. And in, and in some ways that's kind of a, a valid criticism, but really what it does is what it's designed to do is to live within the client's world. So the, the therapist never says to a client, I think you should blank. It's always based on what the client says. You, you, you use the client's language. Brief therapists are very much, postmodern therapists, collaborative therapists, are very much about not imposing anything on the client. In fact, they're, they're the group of therapists that are the least likely to diagnose a client because that's imposing a construct upon a client, and it's, and it's problem-focused, too. So they're much more likely to say, you don't have depression. I don't see depression, you know, because, because they don't want to label someone and keep them stuck in the problem. They want to talk about the times that they have gotten what they want. And, and they, again, they will, they will work very collaboratively with the client. What does the client want? How does the client see the world? What solutions does the client already have that could just be emphasized? What strengths does the client have? Let's ignore the weaknesses. Let's move towards strength. Let's emphasize strengths. And so it, it can be a very uplifting style of therapy. However, it can also be, for many people, it, it can feel very discounting because a lot of people do want to talk about difficulty and they do want support and they do have a lot of traumas that they want to talk about. And when a brief, collaborative, postmodern therapist keeps steering the, the conversation away from that, for some clients it can feel discounting. But it, it really just depends. This form of therapy, incidentally, is, is really helpful for clients that aren't very interested in therapy. For one reason or another, a lot of clients, a small percentage really, will come into therapy not really wanting to be in therapy. Say they're court-ordered or they have a drug charge or they're a child and their parents are forcing them to come in. Well, they sit down and they say, you know, well, I don't know why I'm here. And so right away, solution-focused therapy really helps in that situation because you say, okay, so you don't want to be here, all right? So you're working collaboratively with the person. You're not imposing anything on them. You're not going to say to the client, well, your mom says that you have a problem with anger, so I think we should talk about that. You would never say that as a postmodern therapist. You would live in the client's world, and you'd say, well, what would you like to talk about? And you would continually try to have the client be in the driver's seat, and you would never even think a thought that opposed the, the client's world in that way. Just some other major tenets of brief collaborative therapy is that the therapeutic focus is on the client's desired future rather than on past problems, as, as, as I was saying earlier. So the therapist's stance in postmodern therapies consists of the following elements. It, it consists of being being collaborative, you're, you're not trying to uh, be top-down, you're not trying to be an expert, and the client being a non-expert, you're trying to emphasize that the client is the expert and you're just along with them, that the client knows better than you do. You're just guiding them on w how to find the solutions that they already have access to. 
the therapist takes a, an intense interest in the client's life. They're very curious. And they come at therapy from a not-knowing mind. They call it a not-knowing mind. A curious mind where, as a therapist, you assume you don't know the answers. And you don't know anything about the client's life. You don't even know what they mean when they say depression. The client says, I'm depressed. Well, some therapists might say, oh, okay, well, I know what depression is, so I know what the client is saying. But postmodern therapists are the, are the most likely to take the stance of saying to themselves, I have no idea what they mean by depression. What does that mean to them? I'm going to ask lots of questions to clarify that. Postmodern therapists also are known for externalizing the problem. This is mainly a associated with narrative therapy in that a client comes into therapy and they say, I'm a depressed person. I'm very depressed. And so the, the, the language is, is a construct and it constructs depression as being infused with the client. The client sees themselves as they've labeled themselves as a depressed person. And the therapist will try to externalize the depression from the, from the client to make the depression separate from the identity of the client by saying things like, oh, okay, so how do you fight the depression? So again, you're not saying, how do you fight yourself? How do you, how do you not be you because you're depressed? You're saying, how, how do you, client, fight the depression? So you're in that language trick. You're putting the depression outside of the person. You might even give it a label, like how do you fight the the dark horse or the or the shadow? And in this way, it helps clients to feel stronger, to feel more able to fight something. Because if it's you, then you can't fight it. You can't change it. Whereas if it's outside of you, then you can change it. You know, it's sort of like if, if you had, a, had the flu. When you have the flu, it's a temporary thing. You don't think of yourself as the dude who has flu, uh, the flu. You think, you know, there's you, and then the flu has happened to you, and it's a temporary thing, and eventually it'll go away. Whereas some people, over time, and maybe because of the system they come from, they've labeled themselves as, well, I am a depressed person. That is who I am. That's part of my identity. And that will be very hard to change unless you externalize that problem. So narrative therapists are, are known for externalizing problems in that way, and it can be very helpful. So I can go into more detail on that, but I won't. So you, so you get the idea that, that uh, this umbrella consists of kind of a hodgepodge of different therapies, Milton Erickson, brief therapy, strategic family therapy, solution-focused, collaborative, postmodern, narrative, these kinds of things. They're all, in my mind, lumped into one group of therapies. So that does it for the major umbrellas. Again, you have cognitive, you have behavioral, psychodynamic, humanistic, multicultural, systemic, and brief therapies. And there are some honorable mentions in terms of other theories that don't really fit neatly into any of those categories, but uh, you know should be mentioned. Things like emotionally focused therapy. In my view, it's it's a it's an integration of the different umbrellas that I just talked about but but some people might say that it deserves its own category 
things like exposure therapies should be mentioned, but they fall under behavioral therapies usually. There's DBT, but again, one might put that under CBT. There's internal family systems. I had an episode on that. That typically gets put under the systems thinking, but honestly, in my view, it's not a particularly systemic point of view. It's more of a gestalt, humanistic point of view, but there's lots of debate about that. Also, Jungian therapy is something that uh, sometimes people will categorize in and of itself, but it's often... And I think it's rational to do this, to place it under the umbrella of psychodynamic therapy. Along with Adlerian therapy, they, they usually all get lumped in together. Some people would say that Jungian therapy is completely separate from psychodynamic. But in my view, that just has to do with the history of Jung and Freud and, and the split that they had and how over the years the Jungians have hated the psychoanalysts because of that reason it's like you know team edward or team werewolf or whatever the guy's name was and so there's this there's this competitiveness but when you really look at the major tenets jungian therapy is is really quite similar to psychodynamic but jungians would probably yell at me uh, for that and have incidentally about lumping it in with psychodynamic so you know you could consider jungian its own category I think also phenomenological deserves its own mention. It's usually lumped in with humanistic, but as with any of these broad umbrellas like humanistic, there are many different schools of thought within humanistic therapy. So phenomenological is, is in a nutshell, you are taking a, a client-centered approach. You're very curious about the client, but you're focusing on the phenomenon, when the client talks, for instance, saying that they're depressed, you ask a lot of questions getting at what the experience is like for them. And you don't assume anything. You don't assume that you know what they're talking about. So they might say, so, you know, they say, I've, I've been very depressed this week. So instead of just saying, oh, I know what that means, you, you, you ask more questions, you know, what, did that, what does that feel like in your body? What kind of thoughts run through your mind? What what sort of implications does it have for you? How do you feel about depression? And through that process, and you don't ever have to offer any advice, there is a magical thing that happens in which clients will sometimes have positive outcomes as a result of a therapist just being curious about the experience of the client. It's, it's weird. And it's something that I try to promote with my supervisees because so many of us therapists think that we have to provide some kind of solution, that we want to give a, a cure to a client in every session. Session comes in, says that they're depressed. We want to give them something to make them not depressed. Well, it, it feels like a waste of time just to purely ask about a client's experience because you're not giving the client a quote-unquote cure or solution or something, something to do. You're, you're just asking a bunch of questions about their experience. And so it feels like you're not helping, but in, in my experience, time and time again, that alone can do a tremendous amount of help. 
Some might say that it's because the client is reflecting on themselves as they are answering the questions because they've never really thought about it that much themselves. And through that reflection, solutions come out of it or certain resolutions come out of it. And another person might say that as you are paying attention to someone, that alone can make them feel better. We all want to be paid attention to. We all want someone to care. We all want someone to really listen to us. And sometimes that can can make us have positive outcomes as a result of therapy. And that, that's all humanistic and psychodynamic in, in the way that it's approached. And also attachment-based therapies, which I should also mention. I know I mentioned attachment already, but there are whole schools of therapy that are purely based on attachment only and would, would not associate themselves, per se, with, with psychodynamic therapy. So that des- definitely deserves uh, its, its own category in some ways. All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. And to the listener who wrote in, know that you should not feel like a fraud, and you should not be embarrassed, and you should not be ashamed if you don't understand theory very well. You were probably instructed in such a way in your graduate program that did not lend itself very well to the development of a strong understanding of theory. Again, as I think I mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily the fault of programs because programs have to cram a lot into a very short amount of time. But to some extent, I think it, it, programs could be better at it and uh, fail to do so. I try in my program to to have lectures like these to help people understand the basics of theory. And uh, students often will tell me that they appreciate that. So it might have been your program's fault. I don't know. But regardless, it's all of our responsibility after graduation to make sure that we continue our education and continue our understanding of theory for the reasons that I talked about earlier on. All right. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself.